Well, when I was um, 12 years old, I used to walk to school every morning with some friends who lived on my street, and their names were Paul and Nelson. And I haven't changed their names to protect the innocent. Um, but they would come to my door every morning, and um, we would walk to school together. And it was a good way to get to school. We'd often end up walking home together too. And at some point during that year, I got sick and had to stay off school for about a week. So Paul and Nelson walked to school without me. And at the end of that week, when I was beginning to feel a bit better, um, there was a knock at the door. And it was Paul and Nelson. Um, now, many of you may know that 12-year-old boys don't do emotion very well. It's not really in their nature. So the two of them um, whipped out a box of chocolates from a bag and thrust it into my hand. And did something like, uh, hey, Richard, I hope you're feeling better. We'll see you at school next week. And they give me a gift. And it's a pretty heartwarming story from my past. I always think my friends have been thinking of me and they wanted to cheer me up after a week of being ill at home. But I don't just share that story with you to sort of restore your faith in 12-year-old boys. Um, because the reason I really remember that story is what happened next. Because as I just mentioned, 12-year-old boys don't really do emotion. But I remember being really touched by their gift to me. And I desperately wanted to show them just how grateful I was. So I told them to wait for a minute. I ran to my bedroom. I came back to the door with two pound coins in my hand. Thanks so much for the chocolates, I said. And I gave them each a pound. I remember them looking a bit bemused at first. They may even have protested for a bit. But after a minute or two of awkwardness, they left with the money I'd given them in exchange for the chocolates they'd given me. I shut the door and immediately began to wonder why had I just done that? See, today I can't think of that day without a twinge of embarrassment. I don't know what was going through my head. Again, sort of a psychologist could have a field day with my brain that day, but why couldn't I just accept their gift, thank them for it, and leave it at that? Why had I felt the need to give my two friends money in exchange for the chocolates? It was just crazy. But I want to suggest this morning that my inability that day to simply accept my friend's gift of chocolates, my overwhelming desire to repay them somehow, is actually a tendency that lies at the heart of many of our everyday lives. Most of us, I think, are unable just to accept an act of kindness from someone else. We feel an overwhelming urge to repay them somehow. So someone invites you to dinner at their house, so you have to invite them to yours. Someone gives you a birthday card or a present, so when it's their birthday, you have to give them a card or a present in return. Otherwise, we just feel guilty and they might just be offended by us. So in my clumsy and childish way, in giving money to my friends in return for the chocolates, I was actually reflecting a strong impulse in many of our adults' lives. I can't just accept the gift. I need to repay it somehow. More than that, I can't just accept the gift. I always need to earn it somehow. Now that tendency, it's, it's pretty harmless 
in human relationships. In fact, it can lead to lots of invitations like to dinner and more birthday presents and cards than we usually get. So it can't be a bad thing. But our desire to repay generosity, to earn it somehow, can become toxic in our relationship with God. See, if we relate to God in the same way as we relate to one another, if we see our lives as Christians as primarily a way of us paying God back for his goodness and generosity to us, then we have badly misunderstood the God of the gospel and the life he has bought for us through the death of his son Jesus. See, we all need God to open our eyes to a truth that that at first baffles us, but that ultimately has the power to set us free to find our strength and our joy in God. And that truth is that God's grace towards his people is lavish and he's most glorified in our lives when we keep on accepting it from him every single day of our lives. See, we cannot pay God back and he doesn't want us to. My friends didn't want a pound for their trouble that day. They just wanted to give me a gift. And similarly, God wants us to see him clearly for who he is, a God of astonishing grace. And that's what David learns here in 2 Samuel 7. And before we look at this chapter in detail, I need to point out that the promise God makes to David here is one of the most important in the whole of Scripture. God promises in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7 that David's house and kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that promise is often referred to in the Bible as the Davidic covenant, the covenant to David. And it's a promise that's finally fulfilled with the coming of Jesus into the world. As we've seen throughout this series, Jesus is a direct descendant of David. So God's promise to David that his throne will last forever is bound up with him sending his son Jesus to establish that throne. So in any overview of the Bible, this is one of the chapters you need to highlight. This is a key turning point in God's revelation of himself. But I do want us to focus on the covenant here this morning in line, in line to David. Instead, I want us to see what God's promise to David tells us about the sort of God David trusted in and the sort of God Christians trust in today. And I want us to see in David's prayer in verses 18 to 29 what the right response to this God might look like in our lives and in the life of our church. So looking at the chapter then, at the beginning of this chapter we find David contented and relaxed. He's enjoying a peaceful period in his life. Verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. See, this is a picture of peace and prosperity. The beginning of David's reign had seen him challenged by opponents from within Israel and outside, but now the land was enjoying peace under David. And both the writer of 2 Samuel and David are agreed as to who the source is of this peace. Verse 1 again. The Lord had given David rest from all his enemies. So David is pondering God's goodness to him here. And he summons Nathan, the prophet, to the palace and shares what's been bothering him. Verse 2. 
David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. See, David is uncomfortable with his level of comfort. He knows that it's the Lord who's given him the peace he's enjoying, and so he announces his intention to build God a temple as a sign of his gratitude for all God has done for him. In verse 3, Nathan wholeheartedly agrees with David. He says, that's a great idea, David. So David and Nathan are agreed. David's desire to build God a temple is the right one. After God has done so much for David, now David just wants to give a little back. But look at God's response to David in verse 5 and following. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. You can almost detect a sort of gentle smile on God's face as he gives Nathan this message. David, I've never asked for a temple. What makes you think I want one? Verse 7. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, up to this point in Israel's history, Israel has been constantly on the move. And so God has been on the move with them. Throughout Israel's history, God committed himself to be with them and be their God. When they moved around, he moved with them. And that was symbolized by the ark being travelling around in a tent. And see, already here we've got an insight into the character of God. The living God who was willing to humble himself. He didn't ask for a, a temple or a palace. He moved around in a tent. He was unlike any other God in, the, in, the, in David's time because he was committed to be with his people and to care for them. See, David's instinct to build God a temple was in keeping with the way religion worked in his day. If your God blessed you in some way, you looked for another way in which to repay him. And a common way to do that was to build a grand temple in their honour. And then not only had you honoured your God, but also you could expect more good things from them in return. You see, God wants David to see here God does not allow his people to relate to him in that way. He's not interested in David's attempt to repay him for the goodness he had shown to David and to Israel. Instead, the Lord used this opportunity to promise more and more grace and goodness to David and to Israel. In verses 11 to 16 here, he turns David's desire to build God a house completely on its head. Verse 11, The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Do you see what God is saying there? David, you wanted to build me a house to repay me for my goodness to you, but instead, I'm going to build you a house. Because that's the kind of God I am. So what are the details of God's covenant with David here? What does God promise David briefly this morning? Well, first of all, God promises that David's son will be king. And that's a new thing for Israel. Her previous king, Saul, had been rejected by God, so his son didn't become king. 
David's father wasn't king before him, but now God says he will establish David's dynasty and his royal line would be secure. Secondly, God promises David that his son will build God a temple. In David's desire to build God a house, it wasn't evil or wrong in and of itself. He just needed to see something more of God's character before he did that. So God promises David that his wish to build a temple will be fulfilled by David's son, Solomon. And finally, God promised David that David's kingdom will last forever. And note that word forever in verse 13 and twice in verse 16. Because that would have been a precious word to David. See, these were vile and unstable times David was living in. He was enjoying a period of rest from his enemies, but he knew full well that period would come to an end. See, David was a realist. He knew nothing lasted forever. Except, God told him, my promises to you. Except my kingdom, God tells David. See, in verse 14, we see that God too is a realist. He knows that David's son Solomon will sin. He promises to punish his son when he does sin. But, verse 15, the sin of Solomon, David, or any other of David's descendants would not be able to thwart God's plan for his kingdom. God had chosen David's family to be the one through which he would send Jesus into the world. And nothing could stop that happening. God promises to preserve David's family forever. Because ultimately, through that family, Jesus would come to bless the world. And it's a promise we know God kept. And every Christian in this room has benefited from it. So verses 5 to 16 of this chapter is God's covenant with David. It's a covenant that demonstrates God's grace towards David from first to last. But, but this chapter also speaks powerfully of God's grace towards every believer. So if you're a Christian here this morning, David's God is your God. And in Christ, the grace he displayed to David is the grace he displays to us. So what can we learn about our God of grace here? Well, first of all, I think we need to learn from David. God doesn't want us to repay him. Instead, he wants to give us more grace as we depend on him. I can just let that sink in for a minute. God doesn't want you to repay him. See, that, that didn't make sense to David, and, and it doesn't make sense to us at first. Like David, we imagine we can somehow live our lives in such a way that we can repay God for his grace towards us. We imagine we can maybe impress God with our commitment to him and in our lives for him. We want to pay him back. Often if we're honest, because well, it makes us feel a bit better about ourselves. But we need to see with David here, God doesn't work like that. God's ways are not our ways. The staggering truth of a life lived for God is that we are dependent on God's grace towards us every single moment we are alive. We never get to pay God back. Instead, we honour him by our constant, repeated dependence on him and confession of our weakness before him. We bring glory to God by repeatedly going back to him and saying, 
I need more of your grace, Lord. More of your mercy. More of your strength. I need to know more of you. So you will never get to the point in the Christian life when you are godly enough or faithful enough or or sorted enough that you can now begin to pay God back for what he's done for you. Now instead, the Christian life develops as we realize that God delights in lavishing his grace on us and that is how he receives glory from us. See, God gives us grace every day because on one level, we need it. We will always need his mercy, always need his strength. So like a father who loves to give good gifts to his children, God gives us his grace. But more than that, it's how God receives glory from us. If I begin to think, well, well, I'm actually doing God a favour here. I'm actually growing so much in my Christian life that I can begin to give something back to him. Grace, that's maybe for that weaker Christian over there, but I'm actually doing, doing pretty well. And we're taking the glory and holding on to it for ourselves. But God doesn't work like that. God wants us to say, I need you, God, every moment. I will always need to depend on you. And that is how he receives glory from us. It's a baffling truth. But God doesn't want us to repay him. He wants us to depend on him. So how are we to respond to that? Well, David's prayer here is a good start. Just look at verse 18 for a minute. See, in the Old Testament, the usual posture for prayer was either to stand or kneel or prostrate yourself before God. But but David sat before the Lord. It's as if normal protocol has been forgotten here, as David is just overwhelmed by the grace of God towards him. He wanted to build God a house, but God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And in fact, David's prayer here is the passage John Newton used as the inspiration for his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And you can almost hear the strains of that great song in verse 18. I'll just read that. David said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? See, David is overwhelmed by God's grace towards him and his family. Just as John Newton, the former blasphemer and slave trader, was overwhelmed by God's grace towards him. See, David's prayer here is a response to grace. So what can we learn from it? I think we learn, first of all, that David realises that God's grace extends not just to us, but to the whole world. That's verses 18 to 21. If you look at verse 19 for a minute, the Hebrew phrase at the end of that verse, it's a difficult one to translate, but perhaps the the TNIV version has a better rendering of it than the NIV here. So instead of a question, is this your usual way of dealing with man, the TNIV translates it, And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for the human race. This decree is for the human race. David is looking forward here to the fulfilment of God's promise to him in Jesus. In Jesus, David's great descendant, God's grace extends to the whole world. 
So David responds to God's grace, God's grace to him as an individual, by recognizing that that same grace extends to the human race. And as we try to grasp the enormity of God's grace towards us, the challenge for us is to respond as David does here. To so rejoice in and depend on God's grace ourselves that we long for the people around us to know that grace. As our vision statement puts it, not only do we want to delight in God, but as we do that, we want to display his glory to a watching world. So like David here, we need to pray for a deep, heartfelt knowledge of our own status before God if we're ever to share who God is with others. Verse 18, Who am I that you have brought me this far? Well, the answer to that question for for any of us is, you're a sinner. You're proud and foolish and reckless. You're judgmental. You imagine other people are worse than you, when actually they're, they're just the same. You long for God to forgive you, but you do not want to forgive those who've hurt you. Who am I? I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. But through Jesus, God has chosen to give me grace. Then just look at verses 20 to 21. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. As with David, God knows us. It's not as if we've, we've tricked him into thinking we're better than we really are, the way we can trick most of the people around us. It's not as if God's been dazzled by our Sunday best, by our commitment to church, by our Bible reading. God knows you. And he still chooses to lavish grace on you through his Son. So I hope we can see here, this is a God we need to know. And it's a God our world needs to know. See, instead of having to hide behind a mask of success or respectability or strength or a sense of humour, the God of grace can actually set us free to own up to who we really are, how we really feel about our lives, the things that, that haunt us from our past, the things that frighten us about our future. See, we need to know this God of grace. And so does the world around us. So David grasps that God's grace is not just for him, but for the world. And then in verse 22, David goes on to meditate on another aspect of God's grace. That God's grace is focused in a special way on blessing his people. See, that doesn't go against the previous point. God's grace does extend to the whole world. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. But a great incentive to us in wanting to see other people know this God is actually that we want them to belong to God's people. Look how David describes them, verses 23 to 24. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth, that God went out to redeem as a people for himself 
and to, and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. See, for David, it was an awesome privilege to belong to the people of God. And the same can be said for us. It is a privilege to belong to God's people. And I have to admit, we miss that so easily. I miss that so easily. Belonging to a local church can sometimes feel like just one more burden in our already too busy lives. We come to a church and we maybe struggle with the style of the church services or or the home groups. We, We grow frustrated with the church leaders. We might see all the ways the church asks us to serve all the requests for, for volunteers, for, for money, for prayer. And we can begin to view belonging to a local church as a pretty draining experience. But look at verse 24 again. You have established your people as your very own forever. And you, O oh Lord, have become their God. See, when you look around your, you on a Sunday morning, you need to grasp this This is the people of God. And it is a privilege to belong to God's people. It's not always pretty. We're not very impressive. Every time we gather together on a Sunday or during the week, each one of us will have to make compromises. We'll have to to bear with one another. But we're the people of God. By God's grace, that is what we are. And the living God works in a powerful and focused way to bless his people. See, in verse 23, David was able to rehearse God's goodness to Israel in rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. And together we can celebrate God's grace in bringing us together out of different backgrounds, different generations, sometimes different countries, and making us his own See, every single one of us was a slave to sin, expressed in different ways, rebelling against God over different issues, but every one of us was a slave to sin. And God has set us free through Jesus and called us his own. And God set us free for a purpose, that we would know him that we would see his grace, that he could lavish it on us so we would delight in him and make him known to our world. See, if you're a Christian here today, I can say with confidence that God is committed to blessing you. So that blessing won't primarily be financial or good health or even family security, but God is committed to blessing you by showing you his character. And how that is the one constant good thing in this world. By showing his character as the one thing worth trusting in and rejoicing in in our lives. And let's be clear, to do that, sometimes he has to take away some of those other things we're tempted to delight in for a while. While at other times he uses the good things in our lives to draw us to himself and to help us see he's the one who's given us our family, our health, our friends. And we should give him the glory for that. 
But in all of his dealings with us, whether he is blessing us through the good things in our lives, whether he is actually showing us that he alone is worth rejoicing in. God gives us the gift of each other in that. To encourage us when we're struggling. To remind us of God's purposes when we cannot see them for ourselves. To rebuke us even when we're running after the world. And I know for some of us here, there are times in our lives when the people of God may be the primary or or only evidence we have of the grace of God. That sometimes our circumstances can so obscure God from us that the one thing we can hold on to is that the people of God will show us kindness and grace and mercy. That the people of God will, will pray with us and weep with us and care for us. See, God's kindness is demonstrated through the kindness of his people. There will be times when that is all we can see of God's kindness. But that again is why it is such a privilege to belong to the people of God. And then we come to the final bit of David's prayer. The final response to God's grace. And it's to do with prayer itself. And that is that God's grace gives us the confidence and the courage to ask amazing things of God. Look at verses 25 to 26. And now, O Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. Verse 27. O Lord Almighty, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. See what's happening there. David finds the courage and the confidence to pray to God because God has already promised to give good things to David. See, God's grace to David doesn't lead David just to sit around and wait for God to fulfill his promises, a a sort of let go and let God mentality. No, it's the grace of God that drives David to his knees. It's the grace of God that gives David the confidence to pray to God and ask him to keep his promises. Again, the life of grace between God and a believer is a relationship with him. And as a result, we're not called just to quietly accept God's promises and then promise not to bother him while he gets on with it. No, like David, we can cry out to God in direct response to God's gracious promises to us. And in fact, you could go so far as saying that that the key to Christian prayer is in verse 25. That final phrase. Do as you promised. Do as you have promised God. God promised David his house would last forever. So David prays that his house will last forever. God promised to bless the house of David. So David prays that his house will be blessed. David's prayer to the God of grace is simple here. Do as you have promised. And that is the key to confident prayer for a believer. Knowing the promises of God to us and asking him to keep them in our lives. So what has God promised to us? Well, Jesus' words in John 10... I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
So we can pray for a fullness of life in knowing Jesus. James 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, and it will be given to him. So let's pray for God's wisdom to live for him in our workplaces, with our families, with our friendship groups. To those who are anxious, God promises that his peace is able to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4. So let's pray for that peace. Let's ask God to protect our hearts and our minds when we're terrified of things. And Jesus' words in John 6, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. So we can pray that as we look to Jesus, we would know that our future is secure, that Jesus will raise us up with him to enjoy the new creation. So we can pray all those things with confidence because God has promised them to us. See, so often we limit our prayers to the things God hasn't promised us. So good health or healing or a better job or a happy family. It's not wrong to ask God for those things. If we're anxious about them, we should pray for them. But alongside those, those less certain requests, let's pray in line with God's promises to us that we would know Him, that we would know our future is secure with Him, that He would make us wise, He would protect us and our hearts from fear. So we can ask God for a deeper, more joyful knowledge of Him in keeping with the promises He has made to us in Jesus. So as we come to the end of David's prayer, God reveals himself to David as a God of lavish grace. And David's prayer in response to that grace shows us how the grace of God should shape every aspect of our relationship with him through Jesus. Again, David learns here, we don't get to pay God back for his grace to us. Instead, He wants us to depend on him as a child depends on their father. Not to go, right God, you've taught me enough, I can go off on my own. No, he wants us to trust in him. He wants us to know that his grace is limitless to those who are in Jesus. So you will always need God's grace to you. And if you look to Jesus, God will always give it. And once we grasp that truth, then we're ready to share God's grace with a hungry world. We're ready to see the privilege it is to care for one another in the community of God's people. And we're able to pray to God with confidence that he will keep his promises. So God offers us a gift this morning. A life of dependence on him. A life where he will show us just how trustworthy he is if we will just humble ourselves before him. He doesn't want our payment. He just wants our trust. He wants us to admit we need him. And he wants us to find our strength and our joy in knowing him. So let's pray that we would trust the God of grace as a church.